worship the Lord this morning through songs like the one we just sang. We've worshiped the Lord through reading his word. But you know, praise and worship doesn't stop when the sermon starts. Amen. One of the ways we also worship the Lord is by opening up his word and proclaiming it, listening to it attentively and responding to it. And so we do that this morning as we continue our sermon series through the book of Micah. Just a quick recap. Micah is a prophet in 8th century Israel or Judah. He's proclaiming God's message to the people of the northern kingdom of Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Micah is telling the people, has told the people that the Lord is bringing judgment. The Lord is coming because of your wicked actions and calling the people to repent, to turn back to their God and to turn back to faithfulness, to faithfully living in him. This morning, Micah continues a message. But Micah's message this morning reminds people that if they do turn back to the Lord, if they heed his call to repent, then there is reason to rejoice. And friends, that's Micah's message to us this morning as well. That if you live for the world, you will be destroyed. But if you turn from the ways of the world and you turn to the Lord, you will have unending joy. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, and we'll read the entire chapter this morning. Micah says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine, and every man under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. 
Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, and, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. You shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now here's what I think is the main point of this passage. The main point of Micah chapter 4. Hope in the future reign of the Lord helps in the present pains of his people. Hope in the future reign of the Lord helps in the present pains of his people. As we walk through this chapter, we want to hang our thoughts on four rock-solid truths we see in this passage. Number one, the Lord will be exalted. Amen. Number two, people will be happy. Number three, present times will be hard. But number four, we can have hope. Amen. Number one, the Lord will be exalted. We see that in verses one through kind of three A. Number two, people will be happy. Kind of three B through verse eight. Number three, present times will be hard. Verses nine through 12 or nine through 11. And number four, we can have hope, verses 12 and 13. Point number one, the Lord will be exalted. Now, where do I get that? I mean, verse one says that a mountain will be exalted, lifted up. Not that God will be exalted. But mountains aren't just pretty landscapes to look at, places to climb. In the Bible and in ancient Near East culture, mountains are where deities dwell. God first appeared to Moses in a burning bush on a mountain. God appeared to the children of Israel to give them his law on a mountain. God appeared to Elijah on a mountain. God appeared to Peter and James and John on a mountain. And the temple of God, where God's presence dwelled in Jerusalem, was on a mountain. It's why verse 1 here talks about the mountain of the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is a reference to the temple, which sat atop Mount Zion. But mountains weren't just where Israel's God dwelled. Other peoples around Israel thought their gods lived on mountains as well. They, too, constructed little temples to their deities on mountains. That's why we talked about in chapter 1. God coming in judgment and treading upon the high places, the places where idol worship would happen. So a mountain was more than just about a place, but a person, a God. And verse 1 proclaims that there is only one God. 
one God who will prevail and will be exalted over all other gods, the Lord. His mountain shall be established as the highest of mountains and lifted up over the little hills where idol worship happened. It's a striking picture, especially given the previous scene. Remember where things ended off last week. The last verse of chapter 3, verse 12, presents the destruction of God's mountain. And look there with me in, in chapter 3, verse 12. God says there, because of you and because of Judah's sins, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, a wooded heights. Judgment was coming, God was saying, through the hands of foreign enemies who would ransack Jerusalem and destroy it who would go up to the mountain and destroy the temple even. Make the mountain of the house of God small, like merely a tall tree in a forest, a wooded height, ordinary, and nothing spectacular. These foreign enemies who Micah later identifies as the Babylonians would conquer Jerusalem and take captive its inhabitants. And in tearing down the temple, would even think that they've conquered Israel's God. What Pharaoh couldn't do, what Og and Sidon, the great former kings and their armies couldn't do, the Babylonians would think that they've done. Defeat God. Their conquest wasn't just a political statement that their rule would reach and expand to all other places. It was a theological statement that their gods were stronger, mightier than Israel's God. A statement that was seemingly true. What, as the dwelling place of Israel's God, the temple up on Mount Zion laid waste. Who is this Lord? Not so strong and mighty after all. You know, that's what's behind many conquests today. They aren't primarily political or even personal, but theological in nature. The fight to silence the Bible's teachings on the image of God found in two separate genders of male and female. The practice of belittling or doing harm against people because of the color of their skin. The act of sleeping with and marrying whoever you want, whenever you want, same sex or not. These aren't foremost fights for personal expression or a political platform, their fights for theological dominance, their attempts to knock God down off his throne and set yourself or some other person or some specific desire in his place to show who really rules. And as we look around society, to be honest, sometimes it seems like God has lost. That's how it felt for Judah. Their heads would hang low as chapter 3 concluded, with their land and their Lord seemingly leveled. But one breath later, one verse later, God lifts their heads from anguish to look at him in exaltation. Amen. Judgment is not the final word, but hope. God will not lose ever. 
The Babylonians' vicious conquest and victory did not change one bit heaven's reality. That God rules above all nations. And that heavenly reality will one day be made an earthly reality. As the mountain of God again will be elevated. And God will be lifted up high above any other so-called gods. And all peoples will come to him. Well, look there at the end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2. People shall flow to the mountain of God and many nations saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It's interesting, isn't it? This role reversal. Whereas Israel followed the ways of the nations and worshipped their false gods on the high places, God would make Zion the highest mountain and bring many nations to worship Israel's God and to follow his ways. Amen. They will abandon their false gods in favor of the one and only true God, the Lord. They will even speak like and act like they were native Israelites, have their hearts set where their hearts were set. I mean, their words sound a lot, a lot, a lot like those in Psalm 122. Where the psalmist says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Here the nations say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Like Ruth with Naomi, Israel's God shall be the nation's God, shall be the people's God, shall be the Gentiles' God. The nations will flow to the Lord. And for what purpose? Well, look there at the end of verse 2, towards the end of verse 2. To learn from him and walk in his paths. Notice here the connection between learning and living. They go to the Lord that he may teach them his ways and that they may walk in his ways. Friends, is that why you've come here this morning before the presence of God? That he might teach you his ways? I pray so. That through the songs and the scripture readings and the sermon, that the Lord might teach you something of his character and what he requires. But I pray that none of us falls into the trap of just liking good teaching. You know, it's easy to leave a Sunday morning filled up, commenting on how good the message was. But does it move us to obey it? Instruction should lead to imitation. God teaches you his ways so that you might walk in them. A very practical thing for us to do each day as we read God's word is to ask, based on what I've read, how then should I live? It's a good question to ask one another after service on Sundays. Maybe you're here in, in, in the sanctuary after service or out together at lunch. What's one way today's sermon shapes how you will plan to follow the Lord this week? Again, that these are the nations who desire to be instructed by God and follow him is astounding. I mean, these aren't Israelites, but foreign peoples. 
And just think of how it would have first struck the, the people in Micah's day. They just heard of destruction coming at the hands of the nations. And now they read of the nations joining in the worship of God. The peoples who worshiped pagan deities and warred against God would one day worship the Lord. And notice this won't be forced. They won't be coerced. Rather, they desire to know the Lord. Again, listen to what they say. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And why? Look at the end of verse 2. For or because the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God's word would go out beyond the bounds of Jerusalem and into the nations, and their hard hearts would be transformed. It would have all been unimaginable for the people of Judah to think that the peoples... The Gentiles who'd just been associated with tearing down the exalted place of their God, the temple, one day would willingly serve him. Perhaps it's as unimaginable as you think it would be for your spouse to one day worship the Lord, for your children to one day serve him, for your neighbor to want to know this God. I mean, think of the people. Think of the person, the people, most far off from the Lord. I mean, get a picture of them in your mind. Recall their most harsh words. Recall their most evil, flagrant actions. And now, picture them converted. The Lord shows us here. That's not some far-fetched dream that will never happen. That can be a future reality. Because when the word of the Lord goes forth, hearts are changed and people are saved. How might that encourage you to simply open up your mouth and share the gospel with someone this week? It would have been hard for the people of Israel to see at the time. But the Lord was declaring that he would be exalted above all gods and among all the nations. And when would this happen? We'll look there at the beginning of verse 1. In the latter days. Or literally, in the last days. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of the last days? For many of us, the term eschatology pops into our minds, which just means the, the study of last things. And when we think of eschatology, of last things, last days, what pops into our minds for many of us are the final apocalyptic events that happened before Christ's second coming. But that's not primarily how the scriptures understand the last days. The scriptures understand eschatology or the last days as referring not solely to the final coming of Christ, but as being inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. Theologians sometimes call it inaugurated eschatology. That is, when Jesus Christ came, he inaugurated the last days. He began the final days, where things prophesied would find fulfillment in him, and yet still find a future consummation when he returns. 
I mean, just, just think about how the scriptures talk about this in several places. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews contrasts how God spoke in prior times and how he speaks now. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, prophets like Micah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The writer of Hebrews understands himself to be living in the last days, not just waiting for the last days. Likewise, in Acts chapter 2. You remember Peter gets up at Pentecost and after he and the disciples have been filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking in tongues in different languages. And he preaches to the crowd in Jerusalem. And pretty much what he does is give an expositional sermon of Joel chapter 2. He says in Acts chapter 2 verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter claims that these last days that Joel talked about, where God would pour out his spirit, and sons and daughters would prophesy, has come. And the proof? We'll look around at the disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesying, proclaiming the word of the Lord. With the incarnation of Christ and his death and resurrection, a new epic began in human history. A new time period where the promises and prophecies of old would find fulfillment in Jesus. And in those connected with Jesus, the church. Now, for sure, some prophecies had a more immediate fulfillment in their times. So, for instance, the prophecy that God would bring his people out of exile literally found his, its fulfillment when God brought his people back to their land in 538 B.C. But it had a more future fulfillment in Christ, who brought God's people out of a far greater exile, out of spiritual exile, out of bondage to sin, and transferred them into his kingdom. And yet it still has a future consummation when God will bring all his elect out of exile in this fallen world and into a new Jerusalem, into a new heavens and a new earth. There's progressive fulfillment as God progressively reveals himself in his word, finding its culmination in his son, Jesus Christ. So how have these last days here in Micah 4, when the Lord would be exalted and all the nations would worship him, how has that been fulfilled in Christ? Well, we know there's a future fulfillment, a time when Philippians 2 tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, willingly or not. And even greater than that, a time where Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 sees a great multitude in heaven that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne yeah. and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. 
the prophecy of Micah 4 would be fulfilled fully. But it's already been fulfilled partially. Right now as well. But how? And we don't see a mountain constructed. And a new temple set atop of it as the highest in all the world. I mean, the place where the temple once sat in Jerusalem is now occupied by a mosque. But the Lord doesn't need a piece of land to get his All praise. Right. You might remember back in, in, in John 4 with Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. She was fixated on a place marking where people would worship God. Our father, she said, worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship him. Jesus said to her, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Amen. The Father was seeking people to worship him, not at a specific place, but in a specific person, Amen. Jesus Christ, Amen. who came to seek and to save the lost from all the peoples of the world. He said, if I, the son of man, be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Christ was lifted up on the cross, dying in our place for our sins and was resurrected. And by his death and resurrection, he accomplished salvation for all kinds of people. And he sent out his spirit to apply that salvation to all kinds of people. And to fill people with the power to go tell other peoples about this great salvation. I mean, think about how, how verse 2 has been fulfilled. Where it's promised that the word of the Lord shall go out from Jerusalem to the nations that they might know and worship the Lord. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Starting from Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples spread the gospel message all through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and it has reached, yes, even the end of the earth to all the nations. Where's the proof? Right here in this room. Friends, we are not Israelites. Rather, we are the nations whom the Lord has sent out his word to save by believing in his son. Saints, when you woke up this morning and said to yourself, said to your family, something like what we find in verse 2, come, let us go to the house of the Lord that he might teach us his ways and we might walk in his paths, you and I were fulfilling the prophecy of Micah chapter 4, that in the last days the nations shall come and worship him. Friends, that's why the ideology that fueled much of the practice of this church in the 50s and 60s was so wrong, where black people were denied membership. That's why the ideology that fuels much of the thinking of groups like the black Hebrew Israelites and the nation of Islam is so wrong, thinking that God has one chosen people based on ethnicity. God is not some tribal deity. He can't be reduced to receiving worship from one race of people. 
God is Lord over all. He is exalted over all the nations, reigns over all the nations, judges as the just ruler, verse 3 says, over all the nations. He's not some little G God. He's the Lord Almighty, and he will be exalted. And what effect does that have on us? Well, that leads to truth number two. People will be happy. Point number two, people will be happy. Now, perhaps that's a surprising association for you. Perhaps you equate the Lord being exalted in your life to the lowering of your joy, the end of your happiness. Maybe that's why you haven't committed your life to Jesus yet. Because you think that a life worshiping God is bleak and boring, lifeless. But this passage shows us that there's an inseparable link between our joy and God's glory. I mean, just look at all the benefits that accrue to those who come to this God, who acknowledge his lordship, who see and submit to his exalted reign. Verse 3 says, when this Lord reigns, there will be no more war. He will bring peace, a peace so complete, so lasting, that the weapons used for war will be transformed into tools for agriculture. Swords will be beaten and shaped into plowshares. Spears curved into pruning hooks. A nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they even need to learn to be trained for war anymore. Verse 4 goes on saying that, that every man shall sit under his vine and fig tree. Symbols in the Bible to portray safety and security, prosperity even. Each will have his own with no threat of it being taken away. They shall have no enemies. No one shall make them afraid. What a happy scene. No beefs, no battles, no fighting. Everyone will be at peace with one another and prosper. It's a sharp contrast with, with what the people of Judah were experiencing. There were constant threats of war around them. From the Assyrians and Babylonians on the outside to the vicious power plays of the land grabbers and the wicked rulers from the inside. The prospect for any kind of peaceful existence was dim. But God points their eyes to a day when people would be able to rest on every side. Not worried about invading armies from without or treacherous enemies from within. There would be total and complete peace under the Lord's reign. Notice that the beginning of verse 3 says this kind of peace is only experienced when he sits as judge, when he sits as ruler. It's a big difference from the unjust judges and rulers that we looked at last week, under whose rule the people were oppressed. Under the Lord's rule, however, the people will be blessed, be happy, have peace. And some of you might have a hard time fathoming that this kind of peace is possible. Like the people of Judah, your life is full of unrest because of all the threats to peace around you. Your home is chaotic. Your relationship with your children is combative. Conversations with your coworkers are, are toxic and hostile. 
And apart from all those outside encounters, there's the unrest, the unhappiness that constantly resides in your heart. That no amount of smiles or I'm fines could cover. That no amount of sex or money or stuff can truly mask. I mean, you may have tried it all. Perhaps you've lived the life opposite of verse 2. You've run away from God instead of towards him. You've walked in your own paths instead of the Lord's. But where has it gotten you? I mean, where has walking in your own ways led you? Has it accomplished what you're looking for? If you are honest with yourself, isn't your heart silently screaming out, I just want to be happy? I just want to find some peace. Well, you can have it, but only one way, by submitting to the Lord's rule. It's under him that true and lasting peace is possible. Friends, don't look at this passage as some kind of fairy tale. This kind of idyllic scene will one day become reality when everyone who truly belongs to God will rest with him forever. Now listen to how Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 describes life in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no more death, which war certainly produces. Not only that, no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. For the former things, the things of this world, the problems of this world, the conflicts of this world will pass away. And brothers and sisters of different nationalities and languages will live peacefully with their Lord forever. But is this only a picture of the far distant future? Or has this prophecy too found some fulfillment in Christ? Well, you might not think so. And not with the constant wars that plague our world, uh, physical and virtual, from the civilian wars in many African countries, to the constant fighting between Israel and Palestine, to even the cyber attacks here in our own country. Malware is our most feared enemy now. This prophecy of peace seems a thing solely to look forward to. But there has been a peace that's been accomplished in Christ. A peace between far greater enemies than warring nations. Christ has accomplished peace between us and God. Amen. We read about it earlier in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Or Romans 5.11, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Our sin has made us enemies to God. In our rebellion, we took up arms against him. But God's response was to send his son not to wipe us out, but to win us back. He endured God's wrath against us in his body. He suffered and died in our place, and he rose again, and he calls everyone now to turn from their sins and to put their trust in him alone. Friends, if you've never done that, you need to do that today, right now. Repent and believe in Jesus that you might find true and lasting peace with your God and maker today. 
But not only did, did Jesus accomplish this lasting peace between us and God, he accomplished this peace between one another. And Micah says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. But that's what our sinful hearts do. They not only hate and war against God, but also against people made in God's image. But Jesus has brought peace in interpersonal relationships as well. Ephesians 2.14 talks about Jesus himself being our peace. Breaking down the wall of hostility that existed between hated enemies like Jew and Gentile. Creating in himself one new man in the place of two. And so making peace. Christ, through his cross, created a new people. Not defined by pre-existing allegiances or, or aggressions against one another. But by love for one another. Since we see that in the church today. This little outpost of heaven, made up of people of different ethnicities and backgrounds and personality, uh, personality types and interests, not weaponizing our differences to attack one another, but as it were, beating them into plowshares and into pruning hooks, striving to maintain the beautiful unity that we have in the midst of our diversity. Amen. There's a real picture of the peace and harmony that Micah predicts and heaven one day will perfectly reflect right now in the church. Saints, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. And we do so having been unified under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, Michael points not only to the future blessedness or happiness or peace to be had by the nations as a whole, but also by the nation of Judah specifically. And notice he says in verse 6 that the day is coming when God would assemble all those that he'd driven away and afflicted. Judah's shame in exile would not last forever. God had grand plans for the nations, but he would not forget or neglect his people. Rather, verse 7 says he would preserve a people for himself, a remnant, even through exile. He would rescue them and make them, though once weakened and made lame, into a strong nation. And he would reign over them again in Mount Zion. But this time, forever. He says in verse 8, to you shall come the former dominion, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. What the people had lost would be restored. They'd have a land and a king ruling over them, and they would once again prosper under his reign, just like they did under King David, just like they did under King Solomon. Now, Israel, when they were rescued from exile, never really experienced this sort of a blessing when they got back to the land. They rebuilt the temple, but it paled in comparison to the former temple. And they had no king to rule over them when they returned to the land. But God promises here, not merely an earthly temporal king, but a heavenly eternal one. He would rule over them forever. And it would be fulfilled when God sent his son Jesus into the world, who came to the Jewish people and proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is here. 
Because he, the king, was here to reign and to bring peace to a remnant. Not just to ethnic Israel, but to true Israel. To those who trusted in him as their savior. For those people, along with all other peoples of the earth, there is certain gladness and joy that is ours. As we experience the blessings of living under the Lord. People will be happy in him. But that doesn't alter the reality of truth number three. That present times will be hard. Present times will be hard. And notice the, the, the time markers in, in verses 9 through 11. Highlighting the harsh realities of the people's present plight. In verse 9, now why do you cry aloud? The middle of verse 10, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. The Lord is reminding his people, yes, the future, the latter days will be glorious, but now in the present, there will be agony. God's people would cry aloud, verse 9 tells us. And verse 10, writhe and groan like a woman in labor. Why? Because the Lord was still sending them out in exile in Babylon. The Babylonians would conquer them, kill their king, and carry them away as slaves. They had sinned against the Lord by their repeated idolatry and injustice. We looked at that in, verses, in chapters 1 through 3. And God would indeed still judge them. Micah doesn't shy away from talking about that. And doesn't mince words in talking about how severe that time of judgment in exile would be. Friends, there are real consequences to our sin and disobedience. God will not turn a blind eye to them. He can't as a good and a just God. Even as God's people, we may experience hardship as a consequence of some direct sin of ours. The Lord may discipline us with a heavy hand. Think of David losing a child after his adultery with Bathsheba. But even if not a direct result of sin, God's people will endure hardship, even severe hardship as a result of simply living faithfully as God's people as exiles here in a sinful world. We look forward to a day of peace and prosperity, of endless joy, but we live in a day of persecution and trials. I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul living as a faithful Christian, yet enduring imprisonments and countless beatings, he says. And yet he doesn't think that that's abnormal. He says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It matches what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by all men for my name's sake. Even if for a different reason, we, like Judah in Micah's day, know a present distress. We, like them, know a bit what it feels like to experience something like verse 11, where many nations are assembled against us. Indeed, the very world is against us as God's people. And looking at our present plight, they say something similar to verse 11. Let them 
those Israelites, them, these Christians now be defiled, be dishonored. Let's wipe out their influence, wipe out their witness, wipe out their stupid, backwards, antiquated religion, and let's wipe out their unreasonable God as well. Let's tear them down and kick them while they're down and make a mockery of them. Is that how you feel in this world? Like a fool in the world's eyes? Experiencing hardship and persecutions at the world's hands? Hated by the world at present? Well, take heart. Because even as dark as the days now might seem, truth number four, we can have hope. Amen. Point number four, we can have hope. Why can we have hope even in the midst of present darkness? Because God has a plan for his people. Amen. Plans to do us good and not evil. To prosper us and not pulverize us. Now look at verse 12. And Micah says, in response to the present day plans to come to Judah, as the nations assemble against them and gloat over their downfall, God has a secret plan that his people's enemies don't know about. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord or understand his plan. God was using this time of discipline, of intense trial and hardship, not to crush his people, but to purify them, to strengthen them through trials. Friends, that's the same, the same thing he's doing now. He takes us through present trials, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And part of our discipline is receiving the harsh treatment from the world. But whereas the world seeks to crush God's people, they unwittingly bring destruction on themselves. They gather to take, to thrash from Judah, to gather them up. But God says in verse 12, he will gather them, his people's enemies, as sheaves to the threshing floor. He tells his people in verse 13 to arise and thresh, to get up and harvest from the peoples. And he would strengthen them in trials and make their horns like iron and hoofs like bronze and ultimately give them victory over their enemies. Amen. Friends, that's the hope we still have today. As hard as today is, with all its troubles and trials, we can look realistically at the ugliness of it and grieve even, but not as those without hope. Amen. Because God will give us victory. Though the very gates of hell press up against us, they will not prevail. Amen. God will equip us to beat back our enemies through the weapons of the word and prayer and with the shield of faith that we might beat them in pieces, verse 13 says. Not literally for us, but breaking up their hard hearts by our gospel witness. That we might see the spoils of warfare in this world. Not by seeing our enemies downfall, but their conversion. That we might devote what's most precious, what's, what's most wealthy, what's, what's the most for gain, their very souls might be devoted to the Lord. A day is coming when God will prove himself to be the one and only Lord of the whole earth. And he started now through us as we live in these last days. Those who refuse him 
and who now terrorizes people will get their due punishment. But those who put their trust in him will be forever happy as we live under his rule. We can hope for the glorious future that awaits us, fueling us to push through the present pains as we prepare for a day where we'll worship the Lord together forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that reminds us of the joy that awaits us and of the joy that's now ours in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that all your promises find their yes and amen in him. And Lord, we pray that as we trust in him, that you will strengthen us and give us hope for tomorrow. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.